I grew up during a time where the environment was just beginning to be a concern for regular people. When we started to hear things like Save the World in regular media, we started to hear about the way the actions of human beings affect the earth on Saturday morning cartoons. Save the Whales became a popular motto. Even Captain Kirk and Spock embarked to save the whales. Captain Planet was teaching children to protect the environment and we were just beginning to think it was important to recycle. For large numbers of Christians, though, this increasing attention on the environment was not something that was a concern, and for many people it was actually considered something that was a distraction, something that was actually wrong. I actually, I I remember hearing people decry environmentalism as worship of the earth, equating it with witchcraft. Today's show is all about the environment. Today we're examining our concern about the environment, environmentalism's relationship to Christianity, how much we should be concerned about the earth, the world around us, human beings' effect on our planet. I'm Jason Weedle. This is Where Are We Going? Brian McLaren is a Christian thinker and writer who has in recent years become very concerned about the environment and about Christians' relationship and attitude toward environmental concerns. I asked him why that relationship has been so problematic. Well, I think there are a lot of reasons. Let me just give a a few that come to the top of my head. Uh, First, I think Christians, conservative Christians in general, have been off on the wrong foot with science for a long time. You know, they weren't too happy when Galileo proposed that uh, that the Earth went around the sun rather than vice versa, and then they weren't too happy when Charles Darwin suggested that uh, species uh, develop over time, uh, and uh, when uh, scientists talked about the Earth being far older than uh, six thousand years, and so on. So there's been this sort of anti-science attitude among Christians for a whole lot of reasons uh, that. It goes way back. I, I just think that's tragic. It's sad. It's time to grow up and, and stop that kind of foolishness. Um, I, I think uh, another reason is that um, uh, the, the conservative Christian community, both in its Catholic and Protestant forms, has been so tightly connected to the right wing political uh, world, especially the Republican Party. And uh, you know, it's, this is an oversimplification, but w- one way to say it is that the Democratic Party is largely owned by big banks and that the Republican Party is largely owned and funded by big oil and, and fossil fuels. And so, um, you know, there's all kinds of money and political reasons or financial political reasons uh, for uh, people to be loyal to the to, to not bite the hand that feeds them, so to speak. Um, but I also think 
uh, there are some really insidious theological problems, one of them being this kind of left-behind theology that makes people say, hey, look, Jesus is coming back soon, God's going to burn up the earth, we might as well, you know, have all the fun with it, we can. Uh, I, I've had more people say this to me, and more recently than, than a lot of people would believe. Um, uh, and then another is just a, a general disparagement of the earth, that, that um uh, you know, all that matters is heaven and souls and leaving this. Who cares about this world? It's it's God doesn't really care about it. So why should we? Uh, again, I think those are horrible ideas, but they're deeply embedded and they have a long history. I am Anna Jane Joyner. I am the daughter of Rick Joyner, who some of you might know as a writer who's written I think close to 50 books, um, including The Final Quest, which was quite well-received. And he's also the pastor of Morningstar Ministries and kind of has an extensive, um, what some have termed evangelical empire, <laughs> but a large ministry that spans a lot of different areas. Um, so I am his firstborn daughter. I'm the eldest of five. Um, and these days, actually not even these days, uh, for the past 10 years, I have been on the forefront of, of environmental activism and started out uh, fighting mountaintop removal coal mining because I was born, actually I was born in Jackson, Mississippi, but I was raised in Western North Carolina in the mountains and just feel very connected to the Appalachian Mountains and the culture and the people there. Um, and then I, I, for the past really three to four years, I've been focusing on climate change and a facet of the work that I do is working with people on people of faith to help um, all of us understand how our faith and spirituality connects to this issue and how uh, Christians are called to care for God's creation and to care for our neighbors and how these things are very connected. Those are issues that often don't feel connected for us, I think, or maybe if we come from certain backgrounds within the Christian world, um, Work, being concerned about the environment seems sometimes something that maybe is completely separate from our faith. Why do you think that is? Yeah, that's a great question um, that I've done a fair bit of thinking and research on. I can uh, certainly share my findings and opinions. Um, but I think, you know, I think a lot of it is sort of over-politicization in, in the public sphere. You know, I grew up kind of First of all, not really thinking about the environment. Um, you know, we were raised outside and we spent a lot of time hiking and spent the summers on the Gulf Coast of Alabama on the water. So we definitely grew up with kind of a love and admiration for the outdoors and for nature and, and for this sort of magnificent creation. But at the time, I didn't connect it uh, to the need to take care of it. Um, we didn't talk about recycling or, you know, environmentalists were kind of these distant uh, liberal hippies that were probably going to hell um, and we just didn't think that much about it or, or think through that lens. Uh, it wasn't until I went to college and started learning about mountaintop removal coal mining and and how these uh, how you know we really are dramatically harming you know God's creation in this incredible planet that that God puts so much thought and love into creating and how that in turn isn't just hurting trees and birds and mountains. It's, it's deeply hurting people uh, and harming people and. Um, those are very, very big moral and, and spiritual questions. I think many of us were likely introduced to environmental concerns through issues like saving endangered species, 
saving coral reefs, protecting the whales, protecting spotted owls. Some issues of protection that can actually seem very far removed from our regular lives. But I think many of us are realizing that issues of the environment are not simply issues of faraway species or animals or things that seem to not really affect our lives, saving the trees or saving certain parts of our earth that don't really touch us, but protecting the environment is very much about life, very much about human justice, about protecting humanity, protecting vulnerable people. When we are concerned about pollution or about the warming of the oceans, we are concerned about those things not because they're simply affecting minute areas in certain parts of the world, but because they can potentially have devastating effects on human beings. I met Dustin White after seeing a picture and a post on Facebook where he talked a little about the water in the area in which he lives in West Virginia. That photo of um, my dad's water was actually right after the um, uh, what's now known as the West Virginia water crisis when we had that massive chemical spill. And you know, that was days after they had told us that... Um, the water had been safe to use. Well, what they the word they used was appropriate. The water wow. was appropriate to use. And my father, who was pretty much dead fast and dying of cancer, you know, that was his water days later. And I'm like, you know, this is unacceptable. This is not appropriate for me to use for my, you know, dying father. So, hmm. so yeah. Um, I myself am an 11th generation West Virginian. I grew up in Boone County, West Virginia, which was pretty much the heart of the coal fields and one was once one of the top coal producing counties. Um, I grew up with a long line of coal miners on both sides of my family. And I, you know, pretty much lived with it in my backyard for most of my entire life. Um, And over the years um, growing up, you know, we're told to support the coal industry. Uh, we're told to, you know, be proud of our coal miners and things like that. And as I became more and more aware of things that were happening in communities, I realized that the processes that coal companies were doing, especially mountaintop removal, where they're literally blowing off the tops of mountains, is actually impacting the communities that they are supposedly helping by doing these mining techniques. And we're looking at things like water contamination and air contamination from the blasting, uh, toxic runoff that comes off these mine sites, go into groundwater and into streams and rivers, causing um, a biological impairment to the streams and rivers. We're looking at communities that have high um, rates of cancer. We have some of the highest mortality rates in the Union uh, in southern West Virginia. So... um, and this is a region, you know, and when we talk about mountaintop removal, we're talking about the central Appalachian region, which covers pretty much southern West Virginia, southwest Virginia, eastern Kentucky, and parts of Tennessee. 
And this, you know, this is an area that has been inundated with mining for nearly 150 years. Sure. Can you say anything about um, specific instances you've seen? Um, you know, what what are what are some of the particular communities or families that have been affected by some of the contamination or issue, other issues? Um, one such community that my organization helped eventually get public water to, um, this is the community of Printer in Boone County that uh, was impacted by a process known as slurry injection, where coal mines were taking the leftover processing waste from the coal. Once the coal is mined, it has to be cleaned, and that toxic waste that's left over, they were taking it and injecting it into abandoned underground coal mines. And with that, plus the natural movement of the earth and then blowing up mountains, grounds and rock strata was cracking open and the slurry was not staying put. It was going right into the groundwater. And this was a community where the majority of people relied on their well water for their water. So it was going right into homes. And there were entire sections of the community that had uh, different types of brain cancers. Um, I uh, played with a boy that got sick at 19. I played with him growing up. He got sick at 19, died at 21, um, and he lived in this area. And we're looking at things like um, gallbladder disorders. We're looking at um, kidney disease. We're looking at gastrointestinal disorders like Crohn's disease. And then you add into the cancer, and then you start moving to some of the respiratory illnesses caused by the dust and the coal dust that comes off these coal mines. So what would you say is the solution? What, are, what, are, what is it that we should we want to be working for? Or, and maybe it's different in the short term and the long term. What, are we, what do we want to accomplish to keep these things from happening? Well, we definitely need to seek stronger regulations when it comes to practices like this. You know, we've seen what virtually unregulated coal mines can do. Now, that's not to say there's not regulations on the books, but our state has a long history of not enforcing the regulations. So they've essentially let these coal mines run amok um, because our politicians are owned by the industry, so to speak. So they've allowed the industry to run amok. Uh, we need stronger enforcement. Um, we need stronger federal oversight um, on situations like this. And in the short term, we need, um, you know, we need cleanup of these mine sites. And now that a lot of these companies are going bankrupt, um, a lot of these mine sites, these companies are pretty much absolved of all environmental responsibility once they go bankrupt. So a lot of these mine sites are going to keep polluting, and nobody's going to have the money to clean it up. What about uh, just, just yeah? What what about areas that have been dependent on mining? Um, and you know, you mentioned at the beginning that there there's so much there is a lot of support for coal mining and support mm -hmm. because because the economy of these areas has depended on it. How? How do we become, or how are these communities served in ways that they don't just become ghost towns or we don't push people into poverty if we move away from coal? 
Well, there, uh, thankfully, there are a lot of great people on the ground now who are working on uh, economic projects. Um, OVEC is part of the, the Alliance for Appalachia, which has a um, economy team, an economy working team that works on trying to find some of these solutions for the economic prospects. You know, the coal industry has done so well to set up a mono economy so that they would be so dependent on that. You know, a lot of us seen the writing on the wall early on and tried to start the conversations about economic diversification and were pretty much ignored. But now a lot more people are seeing the writing on the wall and we're starting to move forward. I mean, there's a lot of potential that some of these old mine sites could have. Uh, we're looking at trying to get some federal money um, through the Abandoned Mine Land Fund to come to a lot of the coal-producing counties that will go to cleaning up some of the post, um, uh, post-law mine sites for economic development. And we're still working on you know, community projects to try to highlight things that people can do inside their communities, like community gardens, uh, and we're definitely pushing for, you know, renewable energy. Hopefully we have a strong renewable energy sector that could come into the region. And we're also looking at energy efficiency as a first step to try to help with, you know, people's bills and, you know, create jobs. Sure. And there's um, there's also other groups like um, Coalfield Development Corporation who are working to retrain out-of-work coal miners and doing other types of jobs, whether it be, you know, kind of environmental construction jobs or environmental remediation jobs, which includes like asbestos cleanup and things like that. So there are a lot of people on the ground working right now to try to counteract the, the economic decline that's happening because of coal. Dustin White works with OVEC, the Ohio Valley Environmental Coalition. You can find out more about what they do at OVEC.org. Ohvec.org. Anna Jane Joyner, whose voice you heard just a little bit earlier in the program, was featured on a Showtime miniseries that examines issues with the environment. Both she and her father are on the program discussing issues about climate change, about care for the environment, and about religion. And the conflict between traditional conservative evangelicalism and uh, environmental care is quite obvious. I talk with Anna a little bit about this program. Some some folks might have, have seen you and your father... Rick Joyner on the Years of Living Dangerously miniseries um, on Showtime and talking about the environment and environmental issues. And and most of your appearance on that was kind of a conversation, confrontation. I don't know how to quite put it with with him about or or maybe a a attempt to convince him that – to be concerned about the environment. how do you feel like your father's response has been in general to your career and your concerns and and maybe uh, 
leadership in general in the American evangelical church? I think, um, I mean, he's overwhelmingly very supportive and very proud of me. I think he, he, you know, he, and he, he's a hundred percent behind me on sort of the theological premise that, that Christians should be caring for the environment and, and caring for, you know, how you know, caring for human communities who are impacted negatively by poor environmental decision-making. So I think in that sense, we're very aligned, um, you know, because of how over-politicized climate change is in particular, we sort of uh, still go back and forth over some of the semantics around that issue. And, you know, it is, it, it's a deeply, you know, my father is very, very conservative. He gets his news from very conservative outlets. He's rarely uh, connecting with even other Christians who kind of are outside of that, of a very far right conservative ideology. And so it was such a fascinating experience to spend this year with him traveling around the country and meeting with climate scientists and people who are being impacted by climate impacts here in our own country. Um, and other, you know, Christians like uh, former Congressman Bob Inglis, who are deeply concerned and passionate about climate change and it was, you know, it was my, my dad's a very stubborn man and it, it, and he doesn't, he's not the kind of person where you can just kind of lay out, um, the facts and he's going to sort of rule one way or another. Like it takes him time to research and process information. Um, and I think that's admirable. I certainly have inherited a lot of those qualities. Um, but I think one of the most beautiful parts of that journey was just, is just sort of the story of overcoming different boundaries. You know, it, it's rare that, um, you know, there was this one scene in particular that was shot over the course of the day where it was me, um, Dr. Richard Muller, who's a, a climate science, who was once a climate denier and then through his own research and data kind of switched when he just looked at the data and realized there was no other explanation for, for what he was seeing. Um, and then my dad, and then Ian Summerhalder, who was our celebrity um, correspondent, who's this kind of heartthrob actor on the Vampire Diaries. And we were just having this most, you know, most fascinating um, conversation. I think it, we're just never, I'm never going to be around the table with, you know, a celebrity heartthrob, a climate scientist, and my dad, and then me, the kind of quintessential climate activist. And, and so many beautiful conversations and stories happened out of those interactions and relationships, and they never would have happened you know, were it not for this opportunity to be on this, you know, Showtime series. And I think the moral for me was like, we really do just need to be reaching out more and connecting more across these sort of cultural boundaries and silos that we have set up because, um, you know, my dad ended up really admiring and, and loving the producers and they ended up really admiring and appreciating him, even though we all collectively didn't agree on everything. I'm very empathetic because that's my background. I grew up in that world. It's funny. I remember being a young boy driving through uh, Florida where I now live, but then it was just on a vacation. And uh, you know, those there, there's a name for them. I forget what they're called, but they're those small oil derricks that, um, yeah. that pump oil. Uh, and I'd never seen one before. And there were some in the central area of Florida. And uh, I was sitting in the back seat of this old blue and white Pontiac. I can just picture it like it was today. And my grandfather was sitting beside me. I'm probably now the age he was back then. And I said, Grandpa, what are those things? He explained how an oil derrick worked. I, I remember saying to him, what will happen when we pump all the oil out of the ground? 
Um, and I could just tell, even at that, you know, I was maybe four or five years old, but I, I remember realizing my grandfather never thought of that before. And he said, well, I'm sure there's enough in there to last us a long time. And I said, yeah, but eventually it'll run out. What will we, what, what will we do then? And he said, well, I'm sure Jesus will come back before then. And uh, that sort of put the question aside. You know, there's, I think for people of an older generation, um, the world was so big, uh, and and it was just this limitless resource. We could never produce enough pollution to uh, toxify it. We could never produce enough uh, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases to warm up the earth like a blanket. You know, uh, uh, they, it, they just it, the world was so different for them. And I think for people born after the generation when men walked on the moon and took that photograph of the Earth as a, a little ball out in space, I think we have a sense of how limited the, the world is and how vast the universe is, but how tiny this planet is by comparison. So, you know, it's just a different way of seeing the world. And and a lot of people are, are afraid for two reasons. First, they're afraid um, that God can't handle, uh, you know, a bigger and more complicated world. Um, and it's true, their concept of God might not be able to, but what I would encourage them with is, the good news that God is way bigger than their concept of God, and that uh, when their concept of God grows, they'll have even more reason to worship and honor and praise and trust God. Uh, and then the second reason they're afraid, I think, is that they're afraid if they think differently, they'll be kicked out of their church or ostracized or whatever. And all I would say is any organization that is threatens you if you have an honest question or if you think an honest thought, any organization that threatens you is not the kind of organization that deserves your respect and loyalty. Yeah. Do you think that, that that idea of never-ending abundance, do you think that's built into our idea of America? I, mean, yeah. I, I, think, of, I think of even uh, two, three, four hundred years ago and, and Europeans coming to this side of the world and seeing America as a place of almost never-ending abundance. You know, I have never thought of that before, but I think you are onto something there. You know, this idea that there was always more land to our West that was vacant and open, that there was always more land. And isn't it interesting? I'm just thinking of uh, the last political season when Sarah Palin and the drill baby drill uh, line was going. And I don't think it's it's an accident that Sarah Palin came from Alaska, the last frontier, you know, mm. which is still a, a resource based economy. Um, you know, we're still people still survive by cutting down more trees and mining out more gold and so on. So, uh, yeah, that's an era in our history. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of this is just a leftover from that era. But the other thing people should realize is that that, uh, you know, it, there are an awful lot of things in our history that, thank God, we have left behind. Um, one sure. of them being the idea that, that, you know, white people ought to be able to enslave uh, people of color. Uh, you know, those kinds of ideas belong in the past and not the present. And the same with this idea that, uh, that the earth is there for us to exploit. The last conversation in this show is with Dr. Leah Shade, whose work and writing regarding the Christian's relationship with the environment is interesting and inspiring. 
I have been a pastor for, let's see, almost 16 years. And I realized very early on in my ministry that creation care had to be an integral part of what it means for me to be a person of faith and um, a pastor. So in my first congregation, I started an ecology ministry, an eco-ministry, and that group did some really wonderful things in the, in the church in terms of education, working with uh, young people in the church to help them to understand how our faith and caring for God's creation are integrally related. We did a lot of things in terms of building and grounds, um, uh, encouraging the, the new addition to the church to be uh, a green building project. We did paper recycling. We put in a butterfly garden. We just did lots and lots of things and uh, did a lot of films, education, reaching out to the community with that sort of thing. Uh, I left that congregation to start my Ph.D. program, and um, they, their program is still going. I'm, I was very glad to see that the, the eco-ministry there, Reformation Lutheran Church and Media, is still going strong. So I started my Ph.D. program at the Lutheran Theological Seminary of Philadelphia, and I knew that I wanted to be uh, a teacher of preachers. I wanted to be a, a homiletics professor, homiletics and worship professor. But I also knew that I wanted to make sure that, again, caring for God's creation was woven into my ministry of teaching. So I did a, a, a sort of a minor, if you can do that, in, in PhD where my, my major was in, uh, in uh, homiletics and um, a minor in contemporary theology, specifically ecological theology. So I worked on my dissertation, which developed a Lutheran ecofeminist theology for homiletic theory and praxis, which is a mouthful, I know, but it means that I looked at how can we read scripture through a green lens? How can we understand God's presence in those cross-shaped places of our world, the places where creation itself is, in a sense, crucified. And how can we proclaim the resurrection? How can we proclaim God's work, even in the midst of environmental devastation? And how can our witness help to bring about the peaceable community that we hear about in Scripture, that Jesus preached about, uh, how can our work in preaching and teaching and in the church help to be a part of that new creation? So I uh, finished my program. I graduated my Ph.D. in 2014 and then uh, sent a book proposal to Chalice Press. And um, the book was published uh, in September of 2015, and it's called Creation, Pri creation Crisis Preaching ecology, theology, and the pulpit. So the, this book gives a lot of sermon examples and, and um, gives a lot of practical tips for pastors and lay leaders thinking about how they can uh, look at nature, how they can look at ecological justice issues and tie that into 
their work in the church. As as I've been talking with different folks about our responsibility to the environment, uh, one thing that that does come up continual continually are are justice issues, and I think that's very easy for people to understand to see that if if there's an area where there's severe pollution that certainly affects the lives of people um but for those who are kind of concerned about being the best most mature healthy christian possible and are concerned about following a biblical example of what it means to follow jesus or be a christian can you say a little bit about about how you see the Bible speaking to our responsibility to the earth. Absolutely. For me, it starts in Genesis where we have a creation story that shows God, not in a position of dominance creation, but really lovingly speaking it into existence, calling forth all the things that we see around us and calling them good. There is, of course, an interpretation of Genesis 1.28 that appears to give human beings dominance, and sometimes people consider that domination, over creation. But what we have to do is also read that right alongside Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, where God places Adam the earthling, literally earthling, in the garden to till and to keep. So it's much more a position of not being over and against creation, but alongside and and seeing creation as a mutual partner with us in praising God, in mutually sustaining each other. And so when you look, when you when you read scripture, depending on what tradition you're in, depending on what your personal bias is, sometimes people will, will, will want to read scripture as a justification for human beings being able to do whatever they want to the earth and forgetting that we have a canonic model of the divine through Jesus. Canonic meaning a self-emptying where Jesus does not subdue Jesus literally allows the earth to to take him in in the crucifixion and is rebirthed from that tomb we also see Jesus looking to creation as sort of didactic partners when he says look at the birds of the air look at the flowers of the field um Look at the signs in nature. What do they tell you? You know, listen to the wind, you know, not where it blows. Creation is an integral part of Jesus's ministry. He went into the wild places in order to confront the demons. He went into the, the deserted places in the gardens to pray. This is where he found solace and where he found connection to God. So we have a responsibility to respect these 
didactic partners of Jesus to protect where they live, to protect the water that they drink, the air that they breathe, the habitat in which they create their homes and their families, because that is what Jesus calls us to do, to care for the least of these. We read about that in, in, in Matthew. And the least of these, in from a, an eco-theological perspective, means not just the least of these in the human community, although that's absolutely part of it. But I look at it in an expansive way to say that the, the least of these in the other than human community, among our earthkin, how can we be a voice and be an advocate for those places that are experiencing uh, devastation through fracking, through um, the, the, the coral bleaching that's going on through climate change? How can we be an advocate for the island nations that are watching the sea levels rise? When Christians embrace this responsibility, it's in line with scripture. It's in line with almost every theological tradition that feeds, that, that, that comes out of Christianity. And it speaks to the needs of people today because we have to make the word come alive for people today. And when we speak a word of hope in the midst of all of this devastation, the church can be a very life-giving proclaimer of God's justice, hope, and peace. Hmm. You know, I was just thinking as you were talking, I remember when I, when I was growing up, I felt like a lot of the uh, kind of care for the earth, save the earth thing was just coming into kind of general popularity, um, the, the kind of save the whales, uh, just starting to hear more about recycling. And, and we saw that on cartoons and, and all kinds of ways it was being popularized. And I remember hearing in church circles, uh, concern about some of those things that it was actually worshiping the earth instead of (laughs) worshiping God. And, uh, I mean, that was the kind of tradition that I was in, and I know that's not everybody's tradition, but I think that did become a concern, especially on the conservative side of Christianity, and it, and it's not as much today. But do you think there is any kind of danger in that, that we're caring more for the earth than we are for, I don't know, the purposes of God's purposes for humanity? Well, well I think... Certainly the pendulum has swung way too far in the direction of not worshiping Earth, not even caring about Earth, Mm. but in fact seeing Earth as at most a stage upon which the human salvation drama plays out. And there are debates among the early Christian fathers about whether creation is even worthy of God's salvation. And this has been an ongoing debate for, for a long time. To accuse Christians of worshiping trees is frankly ridiculous. I mean, it's, you know, that, that's like saying that because Jesus is talking about trees and talking about, uh, you know, talking about mother hens and talking about these things that, that you know, should be a, part of our moral consideration that Jesus is worshiping these things. Well, no, that's, that, that doesn't make any sense. So it's, it's really, I think that's more of a red herring. 
And, and so if somebody would uh, accuse us of that, I'd want to dig a little deeper and say, well, what are you really concerned about? What, what What's at issue here? What, um, what are you really worried about? What, what, what's what's the fear here? Because what, what I'm seeing is that the, the attitude is that God gave us this earth to do with as we darn well please. We can drill it. We can frack it. We can cut the trees down. We can poison it. We can do whatever we want. And then the big daddy in the sky is going to come back down and clean up our mess for us and take us to heaven and, and, and all will be right. And that's just frankly irresponsible. Mm. It's not biblical. And in fact, it's, it's, uh, it's sinful. It is a very sinful and selfish way to think about the kind of relationship that God has entrusted us with. The, the thing is, it all belongs to God. All of creation, it, it all belongs to God. At most, we are given an opportunity to live in this garden of the earth, to tread as lightly as possible, and we are answerable to the owner of the vineyard. Remember that parable, the owner of the vineyard? And we know what happened to the owner, to the, to the people, the tenants, who destroyed the vineyard. We know what happened there. There was an, there was accountability for that. And the earth is like that vineyard. So we have absolutely a responsibility to, to take care of what has been entrusted to us. We really are nothing more than stewards of something that was never, it was never, you know, this is not a gift to us. A gift means that we can have it and we can do whatever we want with it. No, it's not a gift. It is at most a trust that we are being temporarily given custody of, but we have to give back and we will be answerable for this. Hmm. So it, it's, it's highly irresponsible to say that those of us who want to care for these things are worshiping creation and not the creator. Um, exactly the opposite. Uh, you look at, a, at the creed, where the Apostles' Creed, God is the creator of heaven and earth. Well, if you're going to worship God, then you need to care for the things that God has created. It's as simple as that. I think that's very interesting, that, that uh, thought, thinking of stewardship in that way, that I, I think very often we do hear that the earth and the things around us are a gift to us, but not to think of it that way but to think of it as it something that has been entrusted to our care for for a finite amount of time. Exactly. That's a, a you you paraphrased it very well. You are um in some sense in your book addressing well you're you're presenting some thoughts kind of as sermons. Um mm-hmm. For for the minister who is concerned about how to uh, present thoughts about how we care for the environment, especially for maybe the the Christian minister who has never really done that before, what would you say to that person? A lot of it has to do with getting a sense of your own place. In one of the chapters of the book, where we I talk about who is my neighbor. And Jesus answers that question by, by telling the parable about the Good Samaritan. 
And we see in this parable that determining the status of neighbor is, is that the criteria for that is who is the one that is suffering? And when you care for the one that is suffering, you become the neighbor. It has nothing to do with your kinship lines, your political affiliations, your tribe, your race, your uh, gender. It has to do with, are you answering the call to care for one who is suffering? If we extend this to our neighbors in creation, then we need to, first of all, know who they are. And I I give a series of um, suggestions, exercises, things that pastors can do, uh, talking to their parishioners about where they see environmental problems happening, going to the watersheds, going to uh, the, the, the wild places, getting a sense of where is where are businesses, industries having an impact on creation, getting to know the, the flora and the fauna in the immediate vicinity around the church. Children's sermons are a great way to help people understand who their neighbors are. I did a, a children's sermon series a couple years ago. Uh, I based it on uh, Mr. Rogers, who are the people in your neighborhood? I said, well, who are the uh, who are the ones in God's creation? And every week I would bring in something from the outside, uh, berries from the mulberry tree that we all tried. Uh, I brought in a, a toad that I found out on the stoop. I brought in um, trickery uh, and I brought in dandelions. And um, and one time we had turkeys. We, we were in a rural lo- lo- location. So I brought in a video of, of uh, turkeys that had come walking through the church parking lot. So um, helping them to see who those neighbors are. Another thing that can be helpful is actually going outside with your congregation and helping them to worship in the cathedral that is the earth. Um, we do a church camping retreat every year. And so there's a, a place where we can have worship. And, and I, I talk about different aspects of seeing the, the, the ferns and the, um, and the pine trees and the salamanders as fellow worshipers with us in this cathedral. Even the most basic command of all, the command to love your neighbor as yourself, which Jesus said is inseparable from the commandment to love God. That commandment says that if I love my neighbors myself, well, I want to breathe. I want my neighbor to be able to breathe. You know, I want to be able to drink fresh water. I want my neighbor to be able to drink fresh water. So suddenly all of these concerns become uh, humanized as a way of caring for our neighbor. Uh, one other uh, scripture I would mention, Jesus talked about, uh, when, he, when he was telling us not to worry about uh, what we'll eat or what we'll drink, um, he, he illustrated that point by saying, look, God cares for every wildflower out in the field. God cares for every sparrow. God knows when they fall from the sky. God cares about them. Well, if God cares, uh, we ought to care as well. Thanks for listening today to Where Are We Going? I hope that you are encouraged to care more about the world around us. If you'd like to know more about the guests on today's program, Brian McLaren, Leah Shade, 
Anna Jane Joyner or Dustin White. Please take a look at the show notes. You can also find links to their websites, the materials that they've produced at mediascorchpodcasts.com. Please also check out the other podcasts in this series. The other topics that we cover include things like nonviolence, mental illness. We also have a podcast called Film Matters where we examine movies in light of faith. Please check those out. My name is Jason Weedle. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.